0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn,
2: Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkell. Here today with the Charlotte Druckman. It's kind of like during football. I know this reference might fall on you, but they say the Ohio State University. But I don't understand why that emphatic or royal the um, but I really feel like it, it it's it's an honor to have you back here. I'm actually scrolling through past episodes of the Food Scene and trying to figure out when you were first on because yeah, you were the 5th episode Back in like June or July of 2010.
3: And it was the first time I'd ever done radio. Really? And And I thought it was so much fun that I then assumed radio was a fun thing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Never make assumptions. It makes an ass out of you an umption. Um, But you you said you've been doing a lot of these interviews lately.
3: Not a lot. Just for a relatively tech shy camera shy mic shy person well, a lot that's why
2: we got you hidden around the corner in the studio so yeah at, at least can't be seen but today you're on for a really uh wow this must feel like a triumph like it's actually here it's pinch yourself kind of uh you know s- scene it's, now
3: it's surreal yeah it's really surreal and i i have to say um vanessa dina at chronicle books honestly i think she's a visionary and she I joke, but I don't think I'm really joking. That the best part of the book is the cover. It is so beautifully designed, um, and I just was stunned because she got my sprawl of a first draft, and within two weeks, just said, "Here's my proposal for the cover," and she nailed it on the first try. Yeah. And I'm told that that never happens. So yeah, that, Kudos Vanessa, to you, is, Vanessa is magic. And yeah.
2: Well, we're talking about skirt steak. Uh, women Chefs on Standing the Heat and Staying in the Kitchen. Your first book, Cheryl Druckman. congratulations. Thank you. But it's no light topic. I mean, it's, it's not a fluff piece at all. This is a long journey that you took with over 70 female chefs around the country to kind of really investigate what gender roles are contemporarily and in the past uh, in, you know, the restaurant world. I mean, <laughs> this is a very broad question. What did you find out? <laughs>
3: I found nothing. No.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Inconclusive data.
3: <laughs> I wanted to approach <laughs> the topic in a different way because I think it tends to get the same treatment all the time. And it's kind of like banging your head against the wall. I'm not really sure it's done any good. I think you'd say I'm writing a book about women chefs. People roll their eyes. You're rolling your eyes with them because you know what they're thinking. You've read the same things they have. And I just thought, Okay. It's time to stop looking at it as a biological argument, first of all. I don't really think we need to have the conversation about how people cook differently. Everyone cooks differently. That's what makes food interesting. If everyone cooked the same, I mean, we would just all go to one restaurant, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, that, that whole topic to me is completely moot and not helpful. Um So I wanted to take that off the table. And I also just thought, let's stop looking at it from a defensive position. Usually the question is, oh, why aren't there any women chefs? Why do they all leave? Where do they go? And yes, there are many more male chefs than female chefs. That's true. But there are also a growing number of women chefs and um, more out there than I think anyone realizes. Certainly me. I didn't realize how many were out there. So. I wanted to start having conversations where we just assumed that this was a norm. And then I talked to these chefs who happen to be women about what they do. And sometimes gender comes into play. And sometimes I, I actually don't think gender yeah. comes into play.
2: Well, I mean, even introducing the book, the first uh, chapter or so, really looks to define what a cook and a chef is. And that, that seems to be more at the crux than anything about, you know, chromosome.
3: Yeah. That became the most interesting question to me. I mean, as a food writer, if I'm not even thinking about gender, I just think it's an incredibly complicated time to be a professional cook in any sense because there are so many options. Uh, Things aren't very clearly defined, but it is a career that traditionally was very narrowly defined in terms of what you did, what your job description was. Um, And so it's gone from being a really micro craft, you know, that you perfected to being this lifestyle concept, right? I mean, you, you're a chef, you own a restaurant, you own many restaurants, you are a consultant, you write cookbooks, you develop product lines. I mean, it's so far from being on the line and mastering tasks and then getting to the top of the Brigade change, yeah, right? yeah.
2: Well, I mean, you mentioned brigade, and I think uh, that too was a big, uh, controversial and sticking point in this book: education and schooling. Um, because the majority of female chefs, up until maybe the you know early nineties, even you know mid eighties, went to school to learn how to cook in their home better, more so than work on the line. Um, when did the proliferation of you know culinary driven education? open up to the masses?
3: Um, It's a double-edged sword because it opened up to the masses, but that also means that it started trying to be everything to everyone, including a lot of people who don't want to cook professionally. So (laughs) I would say that as you see food entering pop culture more and more, whether that's the Food Network, whether that's just the celebrity chef phenomenon, you see more people interested in cooking as a hobby or cooking as a way to make a lot of money or become famous, that's not the same thing as being a chef. So, yes, there are all these options to study, you know, how to cook in school. But I think the challenge, if you're someone who's doing it for legitimate professional reasons, i.e. you want to be in a galley and you want to be cooking, I don't even know if you have more options scholastically. You know, it's almost like it's gotten so diluted, the school pool, that you might be better off not going and racking up all the debt. I mean, that's one thing that became clear to me when I interviewed most of the women that I did.
2: Yeah, and, you know... You almost defined who you're looking towards the to interview. Um, it was people that were looking to be professional or are professional in the field uh, that you know received accolade, but had made the serious choice that they were either a cook or a chef and trying to open up their own place or had already. Um, why did you eliminate talking to, you know, female cooks that weren't professionally driven in this conversation?
3: I think. Whenever you're dealing with something as unwieldy as gender or just anything that's very general, you kind of, you know, you talk about controlled variables. You, you want to get as specific <coughs> in terms of, you know, who your target group is or else you could be all over the place. And I do think that there is a very blurry, um, and often uncomfortable, especially for professionals, uh, line between the definition of cook and chef. And I just thought, if we're trying to talk about, first of all, if we're trying to talk about women who have made it, I think it's best to to talk to the ones who are actually there. Um, But I also just think it makes it simpler to isolate the topic of gender if you've got everything else relatively categorically down pat, if that makes sense. So the idea was, if you have been the head of a restaurant galley, then you would have the title, if we're going to be really yeah. you know, old-fashioned <laughs> about it, you would have achieved the title of chef, chef de cuisine or executive chef. So I thought, let's start there, because everyone else in that kitchen is is a cook, a professional cook, and there needs to be more pride in that. Uh, I think that word has gotten tarnished a lot, but this is a book about chefs, so sorry. That was a very yeah. long answer, but that was sort of my thinking, was just to get it specific, and also if we're trying to talk about women chefs in, in a new and different way, I think you want to go to the women who have done it. And you know what? Hopefully the, those who are aspiring can can read the book and be motivated or scared off.
2: I yeah, I don't know. Well, no, I, I think even you discussing the definition of chef versus cook or, you know, the level of person that you wanted made me forget about gender for a second, which is, you know, hopefully what this book uh, can can do. Um, yeah. Because as much as it is Revelations, uh, it's old news. I mean, it's it just semantics at a point. It is. And it, it just drives me bonkers sometimes that there is that discussion not to say that this book isn't relevant because it is extremely so, um, just that, you know, how do we get past this? Have you figured out after writing a book like this, uh, is there a next logical step of discussion?
3: Well, I think one of the really, here's the funny thing. It is semantics. And at some point, you stop thinking about gender. But the cook-chef thing has a gendered side to it that people don't realize, which is that people tend to assume when women say that they're chefs, that they're home cooks. On the other hand, women in that industry often feel uncomfortable taking the title chef because they associate it with something chauvinistic or old-fashioned. So they're left in a weird limbo, right? I mean, if you say you're a chef, you feel like maybe you're buying into something you don't entirely believe in. Um, On the other hand, if you say you're a cook, you're immediately insecure about the fact that no one's going to take you seriously because people might not be taking you seriously to begin with. So um, in a funny way, one of the things we have to do is we do have to start thinking about what those terms mean, or just thinking about how we perceive people, how they're portrayed, but then also how we perceive them going in and why. And I hope that the book starts that conversation, but I don't think it's it's finished. Um, the next thing that really needs to be sorted out, and it's one of my least favorite topics, maybe because I'm a girl, haha, <laughs> um, but the money issue, how we get more money to not just, women chefs but that whole pocket of culinary talent out there that isn't getting the money that doesn't necessarily fit the it profile um how do we get the money to them and how do we empower them to to feel comfortable asking for the money um and finding new channels for business growth
2: yeah i mean so in this book you did talk to a lot of very successful restaurateurs. let's talk about i think it was your first interview tracy Desjardins who is an amazing figure in San Francisco, uh, you know, ranging from high to, you know, uh, casual restaurants. Walking into a place like that, someone who obviously does have some money behind her, did it change the way you talk to her, change the way you, you know, wanted the conversation to go?
3: I was terrified of (laughs) (laughs) Trissy. And I I love her. It's so funny now that I know her. But, um, She has a reputation for being pretty formidable, you know, and she doesn't suffer fools at all. Um, And she's just serious. She's serious. She's been doing this for a long time. And she she wasn't my first interview. She was – actually, I had done a lot of New York ones and almost all of my West Coast ones. And before going back home from the West Coast, I interviewed Tracy. So at that point, you you thought I would be, like, totally comfortable. But two things happened. One, I was exhausted. So I thought I was just – Completely spaced out and unable to focus, but then also, yes, terrified of her. And you don't want to go into an interview doing that. Um, on the other hand, one of the things I wanted most of all was not necessarily to have interviews in that sort of capital I, I'm a journalist, I'm going to interview you sense, but to have conversations um, because I did want to talk about things like motherhood. You know, um, I wanted to talk about things that maybe you don't normally talk about when you do a typical interview um, and in some ways that can free you up as long as the person on the other end of the conversation is open to it and thank God Tracy was so yes you kind of walked in and it's that restaurant is you know it's serious it's a serious restaurant and she seemed serious and then we started talking and I she'd just come back from doing Top Chef matches and it was like I don't know she just completely let her guard down immediately and we ended up talking about her son and it, that part of the conversation, it was just, she was so candid it was not the conversation that you or I was expecting. It didn't end up being, I mean, we did talk about the business of the restaurant, but it, it wasn't the focal point in the end. It wasn't what really moved me.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's talk a little bit about motherhood. It's obviously a distinction that only women can uh, have. Um, How did that define them in the kitchen? You know, those that did have children and those that didn't.
3: You find um, this all-consuming guilt that comes on both sides that Andrea Roosing talks about. You have that feeling that when you're not in your restaurant, you feel guilty about not being there. But when you're in your restaurant, you feel guilty about not being home. Um, And so it's sort of... A sad commentary to say but I think a lot of the experience is defined by feeling inadequate um, on the other hand good news is it seems that the best way to do it to be able to Be a chef and have that career and to have kids is to open your own restaurant and then have your children. If I had to give any advice (laughs) to a woman who's thinking about how to do that, and it's probably true in other industries too, get the career set up and and get to a situation where you're your own boss or you're allowed to make the rules because then you can figure out your hours and you can figure out how to balance. It's always going to be harder to balance because that industry is just murderous in terms of its hours and its demands. But if you're in charge, it's a lot easier. I mean, there are a lot of um, logistics that people don't consider. There are things like the Family Leave Act, right? You would think you'd be covered by that. Unfortunately, the Family Leave Act tends to only – be applied to businesses of a certain size, and most restaurants don't qualify because they're too small, which means the Family Leave Act is moot, which means if you have child, whether you're male or female, and you want to take some kind of maternity or paternity leave, there's no job security in that. So again, if you're your own boss and you say, I'm going to have a baby and I'm going to structure things like this so that the business can you know go on while I'm on maternity leave or I can find a way to cut back on hours, that's, that's the way to do it. And it's been done. And I think these chefs have done the most remarkable job and they've created an interesting um, model for, for the idea of community also, I think, and how you raise your kids because their kids often end up growing up in the restaurant surrounded by all of these people and food and, you know, being at the table, even if it's not, you know, the home table, it's the restaurant table. And, They're participating, and I I kind of think that's awesome. I wish that had happened to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, an amazing example that that we can talk about the convention of, you know, family is Suzanne Going and David Lentz, um, two chefs in L.A., obviously, husband and wife. Um, How were their restaurants different in that fact?
3: Well, you know... They both, I think they both tried to have an even hand in the parenting, but at the end of the day, I I do believe it fell on Suzanne, but Suzanne has a great partner and Carolyn Stein and that partnership, I think is actually one that should be studied by more people, especially women going into business because they found a way to shoulder the responsibilities and they each have different strengths, you know. Suzanne's really back of house, and she's food, and Carolyn's front of house, and she's wine, and um, I think that probably made it a little bit easier to deal with having kids. Uh, I, I don't think, unfortunately, if if you're married to a chef and you are a chef, it's not like you're you're balancing each other out because you both have the same absurd hours, yeah. and you you know you. That's kind of not like, well, I'll be home while you're at the office and then we'll swap. So um, I think in that case, it worked out more because of Suzanne's business infrastructure than it did because of, you know, the way that her marriage was set up in terms of who does what job.
2: So, I mean, this book is a lot about the the business of the business, not not to mention another show on the station, but it really informs not... One gender or the other, but how to operate as a chef yeah. or, a, or a cook, uh, you know, specifically. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Charlotte Druckmann skirt state. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: You're listening to Bang Bang's Thun by Iggy Bean on heritageradionetwork.org. so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run commercial offset print house that brings together environmentally friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Founded in 1998 by Eugene Lee and his father, Cam Lee, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and green technology. Rolling Press prints using soy and vegetable inks, uses a variety of certified and recycled papers, and they incorporate a chemical-free production process. For more information, visit rollingpress.com.
2: Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel, here today with Charlotte Druckmann talking about Skirt Steak. Her book, uh, Defining and Redefining and, you know, throwing out the window the the idea of gender roles in the kitchen, specifically female. Um, one, is Skirt Steak a feminine cut of meat? <laughs> I think it's such a funny thing to associate with, but obviously people are uh, alluding to...
3: I just, honestly, that title just popped in my head. And I think it was somehow this response to the idea that being a chef has become so uber-masculine. And I thought I want this idea of something kind of feminine and something masculine together in the title. And we think of steak as being so manly, and then obviously skirt is not. And I just thought, okay, skirt steak, and it is an actual cut of meat. And it's it's funny because it's a tough cut of meat. It's actually a really difficult cut to nail, you know, when you're cooking, yeah, um, to get it just right. And so, it's probably not the most feminine cut of meat out there. <laughs> if you if you had to feminize cuts of meat, yeah. I would say not. I just, I just thought somehow that title popped into my head and I was like, you know what? It works.
2: There it is. And it does. And, I mean, talking about femininity in the kitchen and talking about, like, male foods or male cuts, um, I think Lydia Shire is a fascinating example you have in this book. I was lucky enough to spend time with her in Boston and... She took over an institution which didn't allow women in, and I'm speaking of lock Ober. Can you tell me uh, about your interview with her and what that transition for her was like?
3: It's funny because we didn't get to talk about that particular experience, but what's so amazing to me is that if you had to pick a chef based on her introduction to the culinary world who would have done that you might not have picked her because her story in a way is it's so classic right you know her husband was cheating on her she got divorced she didn't know what else to do with herself she knew she wanted to cook and so she tried to get a job at a restaurant in Boston and it was at Maison Robert and she baked a cake to get the, I mean, it's so, it's yeah. so kind of like, and then Betty Crocker showed up with her cake, but she bakes this perfect, ba- this cake, and um, she talks about how there were very few air-conditioned cabs in Boston at that time, but she purposely found this air-conditioned cab just to get the cake there, and she walks in with her cake, and they give her the job, and of course, they put her on salad girl duty, as they called it then, otherwise known as garde-manger, where a lot of women get sent to, you know, prep vegetables. Um And from there, she ended up studying um, at Le Cordon Bleu in London. And, you know, she came back and she came back to the same restaurant, worked her way up that line and then eventually just reached the top. But you look at that, which is so classically chauvinistic and you think this is not the chef that's going (laughs) to go in there and take over that boys club. And I, I think. That's what makes it all the more impressive is that she has been in this industry so long and she's seen it change from when you could only come in with your baked cake and get a job chopping vegetables to saying, hey, I'm taking over this. Yeah, well,
2: it showed her chops too. It's about capability. But, you know, you bring up an interesting and cake, that is, um, or pastry that a lot of women tend to look as that being there, you know, stationed in the kitchen. Why? Why?
3: This is something that is, it baffles me. I, I talk about it in the book because I feel like I have these ideas about why it might have happened, but no one can give me a concrete explanation. And I say this because we borrowed everything else in terms of our restaurant structure and ideas about dining and fine dining from France. I mean, the brigade comes from France, this idea of how your meal should be organized and what makes it an excellent restaurant. Um, it's all so very French, and the chauvinism too, and yet the one area of cuisine in France that really still remains a completely male stronghold is pastry, and yet in America... <laughs> completely the opposite, but I would also say that in this country, we don't have that respect or history of the art of pastry with a capital P and one of the things i started thinking about was how you know go to paris and you see boulangerie which are the bakeries and then you see the patisserie which are the you know the pastry shops there's a very clear difference in america you want to go get an éclair or a beautiful fine tart or a loaf of bread and you just call it the bakery so i think we might have had some conflation of that and economically we might not have been exposed to pastry in the same way and if you start looking at things like economics, um, the one part of a restaurant that is the first to go, if you're cutting costs or the one that you might not have, or that maybe you have someone sort of cover on the side is pastry, right? It's sort of the afterthought. So it makes sense. in in that way that women would kind of get shunted there. Cause it's the optional, yeah, <laughs> it's the optional part of your restaurant, unless you're doing prefix. Yeah. I um, mean,
2: so talking about pastry and economics, uh, the sad state that was Lossy. I think Heather Carlucci oh, Rodriguez. I, yeah, I still dream Dear of that sweet place. Sweet Lossy. <laughs> but I mean, she was one of the best pastry chefs in New York. Um, yeah. She worked for what Boule?
3: Yeah, she did, and she she was at I think um, she worked at Mondrian with Tom Colicchio. I think she had a moment with Claudia Fleming at some point. She was at Union Square Cafe uh, early on when it opened. Yeah, she she been everywhere, and she has gotten three stars, I mean, under the umbrella of the New York Times Review three times, which is practically unheard of for a pastry chef.
2: So, I mean, being a pastry chef and then opening up, you know, what, a North Indian restaurant in the West Village, do you think people took her seriously? Uh, There was a different way of thinking about, you know, her as a chef then?
3: I think people didn't take her at all. Yeah. I think it was... Oh, kind of, you know, those of us who lived in the West Village and saw Lassie and, and are, like me, pastry whores maybe paid attention. Um, but it wasn't something that was considered a big deal either way. And ironically, look at someone like Alex Stupak who's gone and, you know, said, okay, I did pastry, I, you know, I nailed that, now I'm going to go do Mexican food. And it is like, oh, my God, look at this genius. And I love what he's done, but... Um, It's interesting to look at that. And some time has passed, yes, but you can also look at the fact that he's a guy. I mean, I think that that's happened in some other cases, too, where you've seen male pastry chefs go and do savory things or open like pastry restaurants and it gets all sorts of attention. And Heather really didn't. Or if she got attention for Lossie, it was removed from the context of what she had done previously. And it was just, oh, look at the sweet spot that we found. They have really good eggplant. Yeah. You know. So um, that's something I know is worth talking to her about because she definitely has some strong opinions on that. I mean, she also has some strong opinions just on what it means to cook ethnic food um, and how that's often looked on.
2: I mean, did you touch on ethnicity or, I mean, were you specifically talking about gender in this book?
3: I decided to keep it, again, talking before about, you know, just getting your controlled, (laughs) you know, um, variables down. But I also, to go back to that idea of having conversations and not interviews and not wanting things to start feeling anthropological, I felt like (laughs) as a white you know, as a white girl, I could sit down and have conversations about being a woman. Um, whereas, once you start talking about things like ethnicity, I start feeling like I'm at a museum looking at an exhibition, and I don't want the person I'm talking to to feel like that. That's not the book I wanted to write. So, I would be really happy if someone read that book and decided to do something on ethnicity. Yeah, and a few people could tackle that. I mean,
2: yeah, or being a cook. I mean, I found it so disarming and heartening at the same time when you were talking about never having actually worked in the kitchen and why. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, why uh, that situation? Oh, so
3: emo. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, I mean, I'm a natural born klutz, first of all, but I noticed at an early age, I just seemed to get injured more often and harder than other people. And um, I broke some kind of major bones in a pretty short span of time in my, like, between the ages, I think, of, like, 19 and 24, and I, like, did stuff to my back, and I just thought it was odd because I'm not an athlete. So, you know, you break your kneecap, someone thinks you must have gotten into a very exciting skiing accident. No, I slid on some black ice. Like, it was not <laughs> – it seemed <laughs> like maybe the injury was bigger than what it should have been. So I just took it upon myself to get a bone density test, and it turns out I have osteoporosis, which – um I have subsequently learned is technically a pediatric disease that presents geriatrically. So they they think about twenty percent of the female population walking around with already you know, low bone density well before they've hit menopause. And I just figured it out early because I am a class. (laughs) Um, But that made me realize that I probably didn't have the physical stamina required to handle the kitchen in the way that I would want to. I'm not saying you can't do it. But when I think about if I wanted to have the experience, the kind of experience I wanted to have, I just don't think that that's where my strengths lie. I mean, I'm a, a decent home cook. I've got a, a good sense of flavor, and obviously I love food, and I get it, but I just thought that that was probably not the best place yeah. for the likes of me.
2: I mean, let's let's talk about physicality and strength, because I think stamina is something separate. Um, you know, a woman can work in the kitchen and do the long hours, and if she can show that... Why isn't she on par? Yeah. Um, and, you know, physical structure, too. Not to say that all women have, you know, a different hip structure than men, but it's true. Maybe there are some advantages to being on the line and being on that pivot.
3: Oh, I, de- I mean, I definitely think... First of all, I think it's a question of ergonomics. I mean, I think if, if the original professional chefs in France were female, kitchens would probably look a different way. Things might be lower, things might be positioned. I have to say, I mean, again, I hate making these stereotypes, but women have a certain sense of practicality about where to place things in general for efficiency, maybe because we don't have as, you know, arms that are as long or we're not as tall, but we're kind of crafty at figuring that stuff out. So it'd be interesting to see what life would have looked like if those kitchens were designed by women cooking in them. Um, (laughs) I always wonder that. But I I don't think it's about gender. I just think certain people have greater physical endurance than other people i mean there are lots of highly unathletic spazzy men out there (laughs) that probably aren't going to be doing that well in the in the kitchen either you know hey are you claustrophobic probably not a place for you too there are all (laughs) sorts of things that can that can prohibit your being in that environment and you know some people have found ways to change it um but i don't know how drastically you can change it just in terms of finances and you know just real estate i
2: thought you meant like knock them in the balls yeah (laughs) (laughs) because that was another little thing situation that happened physically it did did. yeah Yeah,
3: that's you know don't don't count the girls out
2: yeah i mean it's you strip away um gender yeah and you just have it on physical endurance or structure alone do you see a big difference in the way people work in a kitchen or I mean we have a brigade system so it's already structured there's a protocol so what did you see as the glaring differences between male and female cooks and chefs
3: I mean I think a lot of times it's the environment that's dictating the behavior more than it is the individuals you know who are really having that kind of impact and it's funny cuz when you see and it's why I did two different chapters When you see all men in a kitchen and you're the one woman, it can – there's an energy, just an energy. It's like a frat house and it's extreme and it's probably unpleasant. But on the other hand, if you're in a kitchen with all women – Also unpleasant, (laughs) right? (laughs) There's just, it's an energy. You want a balance. I think in all things you want a balance. So I I actually think it's environmental more than it is, is there an actual difference in the way that they're cooking or even interacting? I just, you know, you put a a bunch of dudes in a small space, see what happens. Put a bunch of women in a small space, see what happens. You're going to have different kinds of animosity and tension. It's just going to... Realize itself in different ways.
2: So, what female chef de cuisines or chef de cuisine or executive chefs have mainly female staffs? Um, hmm. Because, like Barbara Lynch in Boston, what does she have?
3: She, I mean, I, I, I'd be. I'd, it's sort of tricky to say that they. I don't want to say that they actively go out and recruit women. Um, I think some are just more mindful of having a balance in the kitchen in general, and I think that's more what. Their MO is and I think that there are male chefs who do the same thing. Um, Barbara's really good about mentoring women in her kitchen, but it's not like she's saying I only want yeah. women in my kitchen. I'm it's not. about giving them the chance that she has. Yeah,
2: and I bet you they gravitate towards her for that yeah. strength as well. Yeah. But then Nancy Silverton.
3: Yeah. She, you know, but she talks about how the first kitchen she learned in was it was you know, mostly guys, but it was just that Northern Cali attitude that was such a refreshing shift from what you see in the East Coast that, you know, French influence. And again, that wasn't female, but it was just a more moderate way of getting stuff done. And she really appreciated that. And so then she started gravitating to kitchens like that. And I think that's how she runs her kitchens.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, eliciting these responses from all these women ladies ladies is wrong women Uh, now now i'm scared (laughs) i was always coming up with
3: synonyms because i don't like word repetition so i call them like fillies. it it was bad it's
2: not good yeah yeah very guys and dolls of you um um, (laughs) now i'm just thinking of fillies uh and all these other very funny (laughs) they're all like animals too like chicks um you have all these women I'm trying to get to my point again. Uh, You have all these women, and you were listening to this wheelhouse of responses, which I'm assuming you, uh, well, assumed most of these. Was there anything shocking? Was there anything so non-majority that it was like an extraneous example of gender in the kitchen?
3: There were a few, I think the women that talked about violence in the kitchen. I think it's just because whenever you hear about that, you flinch. I mean, and it's funny cause I think men have complained about it. I always cite Eric repair because I think it's so extraordinary that he openly on the record talks about how wrong he thinks that is and how he came out of that because people do tend to think it's a very male way of, you know, running a kitchen. So to hear a, a male chef talk about how he has actively tried not to do that to me is, was always pretty awesome. But there were a few women who talked about how that abuse had affected them and how they then found themselves revisiting it on their employees and how it destroyed them to do that. And they both sort of had these moments where they stepped back and they saw what was happening and they actively changed how they were behaving. That was really shocking to me. Um, Because you expect to hear about the chauvinism and you expect to hear about pan throwing. You kind of expect it. What you don't expect is for them to admit that they then went and did the same thing. Um, So I thought it was very brave of them to share it. Um, And then also great that they had actively changed their pattern and changed the tone of their kitchen accordingly. Uh, I thought that was amazing. Trying to think, I mean, what was this isn't like shocking. It's just the number of women when I said, Okay, I'm doing this book who said, Well, you don't want me to be in your book because I don't have all those stories about like having my butt pinched and I that's what I wanted. I actually didn't want the ass pitch you know, pinching stories because those are the ones we always hear. Again, do it doesn't always have to be such a defensive, I'm the victim saga, right? So it was amazing how they were So many of them who are apologetic about not having experienced the cliche kitchen. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, that almost reconfirmed your initial uh, assumption that maybe there isn't that big a difference.
3: No, I mean, I think that that so much of the difference has to do with what we're used to historically and how slow we've been to stand up and say, why don't we just get rid of it? Like, it kind of just still holds everything together. And we've rejected a lot of other aspects of it, like everyone's tired of fine French dining, so the food part of it has changed, but the structure hasn't changed, and yet everyone has an issue with it. Even if they find it highly functional in terms of just working in a small space and and getting a lot of tasks done, most people complain about the lifestyle of that kitchen, right? Um, So I think that that has more to do with it often than I think individual people being sexist, you know, and and similarly, as a member of the media, I think it's, it's the media, right? We have a way of portraying or celebrating or advocating for certain types of talent, certain types of chefs, and we have ways of pigeonholing male chefs into certain roles and female chefs into certain roles, and then, you know, it, everything kind of follows from there, and you get the whole confusion about the dog wagging the tail, you know, anyway, Basically, I don't think we're dealing with sexist people individually. I think we're dealing with a flawed system, and we all know it's flawed. And everyone's trying to figure out how to change that system, in part because it's old-fashioned, but just in part because so much is changing anyway that you kind of have to change to keep up.
2: Yeah, well... Trying to keep up with you is very hard. Sorry, Be, No, no, I don't mean thought wise. I mean, because you are on the road doing a couple dinners associated <laughs> yeah. with the book. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no apologies.
3: With my tangents and ramblings.
2: Um, tell me where you're going, who you're dining with, and if you're yeah. willing to keep on engaging in this conversation with people there.
3: Yeah. Um, I hope, I mean, I, I, Again, as as a journalist, we get invited to a lot of as you know, a lot of book parties and I get the sense I hate to say that there's like this core group of pals who shows up to get the free orders and booze. I don't even think people remember why they're there. Oh, it's a book party, which book? Not sure. I'll get it as when I leave, right? I'll get a copy at the door. I really didn't want that for my book. I wanted to take the community that I created on the pages and bring it into the real world. So I thought, okay, it would be really great to have these dinners with the chefs in the book where maybe they cook together and maybe it's a smaller dinner and it's local and – we pick a nonprofit so that you can't get, as my dad would say, schnorrers who <laughs> are coming in for the free stuff, but who are there because they actually want to be part of something. And they want to be part of something bigger, as corny as that sounds. So, yeah, I started doing the dinners. Um, I did the West Coast. We did one in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco and L.A. Um, and then I have an event in Washington, D.C., with Ann Cashin and Carla Hall on Thursday night that I'm so excited about. And then another one in Philly, which is crazy, the number of women participating in it. And it's chefs and mixologists, which is fun. Um, and then it goes from there. There's Chicago. There's Atlanta. Charleston, where a dude is hosting. I'm so excited. Jeremiah Bacon, props. Um And then New York. There's a really special one at Anissa that has sort of a surprise element um, in it. And it's very meaningful to me. And then um, Boston.
2: Yeah. Well, that's quite a road trip. Yeah. And people can find tickets to these events where.
3: Yeah. If they go onto my Tumblr, which is the skirtsteakfiles.tumblr.com, they'll see the whole the whole list of where I'll be and where the events are. And sometimes you go straight onto the restaurant's website and sometimes you just call and you book.
1: Um, Excellent.
2: Well, if you want to chase around Scarlett Druckmann's skirt steak around the country, <laughs> please do so. Go to her Tumblr account. Thank you so much. And this is only the beginning of this conversation. Hope to have so many more with you. Me
3: too. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.
1: Heritage Radio Network is now on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.